Hey, James here. Before we jump into today's shows, just a quick request. Here at Navara Media, we're running an audience survey and we'd really like to hear from you. We want to know who you are, what you're into and what you enjoy, uh, who and what you'd like to hear more of or where you listen. This is especially helpful to us if you're a listener to Navara FM because we don't have many ways for you guys to feed back. The survey's online and it doesn't take long. You can find it at navara.media slash survey. S-U-R-V-E-Y, that's survey. navara.media slash survey. Thanks. Let's get on with it then. Desire. Who has not known the agony of longing or fallen as if suddenly evacuated of any personal will under the irresistible drive of desire? Who has not lamented its amoral unfairness? Who has not found all their neat categories and carefully tended taxonomies upended by it? Desire makes wise men fools. And yet... You're listening to Navara FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's finest radio station. I am James Butler. Jonathan Dolimore, to my mind, one of Britain's finest thinkers about literature, about sex and about the politics that spring from those two things, has written a memoir called Desire. It is an extraordinary book, a story about sexuality, yes, in all its messy and compelling forms, uh, as lived especially by gay men, but also larger than any mere tribalism or identity. But it's also a book about lived experience, that most fashionable of terms, the lived experience of sexuality, of desire, of depression and class often in ways which complicate and upset the preferred arguments of those who most often invoke lived experience in their defence. It's also, as if that weren't enough, a book suffused with a life of thinking through literature, of insisting that literature is a form of thinking. I think it is a spectacular book. We will be talking with Jonathan today. You could also, if you want, Think of this as Navara FM's contribution to Pride Month, a resolute insistence against prudes, scolds, moralizers, and useful idiots that it is desire and sexuality that sit at the heart of Pride's politics, and that the complexity, the difficulty of desire is worth engaging with even, and perhaps especially, in its most uncomfortable forms. I should say a little bit before we jump in on Jonathan's life and career Having left working in a car factory to study English and philosophy at Kiel, that story is told in the book, he went on to teach at Sussex, where he wrote Radical Tragedy, which is a still astonishing exploration of the power of 17th century English drama to explode conventional notions of human being. He co-founded the Centre for the Study of Sexual Dissidents with Alan Sinfield, his then partner, with whom he also produced Political Shakespeare, which is a landmark book uh, in cultural materialism, Dolomore's book on sexual dissidence, which he, in which he recovers the lost histories of perversion, is now in a superb new edition, uh, with a wonderful new chapter on Oscar Wilde's Dorian Gray, and threads in all of this work, which include also landmark books on death, desire and loss, sex literature and censorship, are lurking in the background of our conversation. All of the work, to my mind, is marked by a refusal to settle for 
easy or lazy answers, and it's why I like it so much, and it's why I think you should be reading it. Now, an interview like this one has to be conducted in person. Can you really talk about desire via the antiseptic medium of a laptop screen? I don't think so. So, Navara Media producer Chow Ravens and I travelled down to meet Jonathan on one of those blissfully warm days earlier this week. So let's talk about desire. You know, it would be tempting to get you to talk just about sexuality, which is a really strong presence in the book. But there are lots of other forms of desire in there as well. Yes. Because it seems to me it would be possible to write about the things you're writing about by having them animated by other things, right? Um, So why desire? Why is desire so central for you? Let me give it, let me try to give it as an example. Um, Let's say I'm, I'm a young guy and I realise I'm gay. Um, so what do I do about that? Well, I, I can join the tribe. I can embrace the identity. Um, I can cancel anyone who comes along that I don't, don't agree with. Um, I can accuse the dominant culture of being uh, homophobic. And uh, I guarantee almost certainly that I'll never get my heart broken and I live boringly ever after. So that's one kind of desire. But there, there, there might be this alternative, which is that I realise that, first of all, I realise extraordinary my vulnerability around desire, um, which is a very, very important place to start. And then I realised that actually, rather than desire and identity dovetailing in some neat way, even with my limited experience as this young man, I find that actually desire can undermine identity. In fact, I, you know, I have already had experiences where I feel wrecked by desire. So there's something about this other kind of desire which is much more interesting than the first kind, even though it's also more painful. Um, and I think that at that point, I realised that actually my experiences are only interesting at the point where they intersect with some larger point. So although the book is very much a memoir, um, for me, it was very important to try and connect with these larger understandings of what desire is. And I should say that what was very, very important for me was going back in history and I think, you know, the, the modernity and desire is, there is a way in which these things are just profoundly simplified. And I have to say that although, you know, I spent a lifetime reading psychoanalysis, I think I found out more about, I found out more interesting things about desire from the literature of the past and particularly the early modern period, the time of Shakespeare and so on. The forms of desire that, that animate the book aren't just sexual. And you draw a distinction at various points between the sexual and the sensual, yes, yes. which seems quite important mm-hmm. and mm. lacking in contemporary discussions mm. of, of desire. So could mm. you explain it a bit? Well, I think it's, it comes down, I think, to the preciousness of touch. Um, one of the things that I realised was that, for me, touch and sensuality 
uh, was, as you say, something strangely disregarded, and particularly in pornography. Um, you know, pornography has its repressions big time, and that's one of them. And it seems to me that um, the preciousness of touch is, is also about a kind of physical communication, and it is it's extraordinary how little communication there often is in sex. Um, so, yeah, it's it's I th- yeah it's it is something that was very very important. And when I look back, it, it's the preciousness of touch that I remember I think most acutely. E- even you know when I was talking about um, complete strangers or um, you know casual encounters, and and that. Yeah, that that was very very important to me. Um, sensuality, sensuality. It's almost a kind of aesthetic, if that doesn't sound too pretentious. Um, and for me, always in this stuff, it's about trying to extend the range of one's perception. Um, you know, and the thing about desire, obviously, it can be incredibly blinkered and focused and obsessive and narrow. And, okay, that's that's fine. That's what we are. That's what we do. But the really interesting stuff is when you can, just as I was saying earlier about where you can connect your desire maybe with something else historically, so you individually cease to be the focus and become almost the vehicle for something larger than yourself. I mean, that's interesting to me, whereas the the, the kind of specific desires of the individual well they may or may not be interesting but they're usually uh, very quickly forgettable and and so so again with sensuality it seems to me if, if you can extend the range of your perception or to use an analogy from music which we were mentioning earlier the frequency range you know you can go deeper and higher and that seems to me to be just not only deeply rewarding but it 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 gets closer to the truth of being insofar as we ever can or the mystery of being being and you know it doesn't have to be a philosophy or a theory but it's there and it's 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 very very important there's a, a an essay by by Gillian Rose who's yeah. someone who's often in my thoughts it's, yeah. her, it's a sort of really kind of swinging review of Schindler's list she accuses it of having the sort of sentence what's your, the sentimentality of the ultimate predator which is the idea that you you watch and you're not there's no sense that this is the you know that this is something that emerged from a culture like the culture in which you That's right. exist, That's right. and that you are you you your tears are kind of cathartic, yeah, yeah. but they in no way implicate you yeah. or or the things that haven't changed um, uh, since since the the early thirties, and therefore you are in no way confronted with the possibility of repetition. Uh, and she favours oh, something like the dry-eyed um, you know, seriousness of grief rather than the kind of catharsis of, of, That's interesting. of tears. But, but it's exactly, I think, the same, the same thing. It's like the, the, the extremely uncomfortable thing to confront. Yeah. Um, and, and again, you know, I mean, Yeats is one of my favourite poets, but it's oh. exactly the kind of um, uh, difficulty that he, he presents us with. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased about that difficulty. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
and and also transported. Like, I, yeah, you know, yeah, I, yeah. It's hard. Yeah, and it can go. I mean, if it's an if it's a purely academic exercise, you say, "Oh my goodness, here's a contradiction. Let's tremble around <laughs> it. Let's kind of explore both sides." Um, oh, there's the bell. You know, we'll go to the next lesson. That that's no good. You've got to do something with it. As I said earlier, I think I'm sounding a bit Protestant here, but <laughs> you, you you've got to go somewhere and 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 understanding. I call it dangerous knowledge. You've got to take that into yourself. And for me, you know, I don't know about... One of the things I love is those pictures of people like Sigmund Freud, Thomas Mann, sitting at their desk in their library. And so obviously it's the, you know, the environment is high bourgeois, what you'd expect, the book like shelves and so on. But what I love is the fact that they're dressed in suits with a tie. And they're sitting at that desk... Where, in the case of both those figures, they delve into the deepest, darkest shit that's going, <laughs> and that—that that to me is fascinating. And that, and I think I Faubert. So, I, hang on, I'm just jumping here, but I, he said something like, "Be regular and ordered in your life, so that you can be demonic in your art." Something like, that. but, but. So again, it's just coming back to the point we raised earlier. The notion that the high bourgeois is some kind of, you know, obsolete, um, boring, upper class, you know, culture. No, 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 no way. Again, we can learn something really profound from that. But, but again, what is it? What, what do you do with it? Um, and I keep coming back to that. What, you, what do you do with the dangerous knowledge? What do you do with the fact that you've extended the perception, the frequency range of your desire, so that you can now? understand connect with some of the maybe the atrocities of the past um and it seems to me that in german culture um unlike our own with people like thomas mann his humanism i should sorry just briefly thomas mann in the early days as a writer was ripe for nazism and he became one of his most vehement critics and one of the reasons he did so, because he'd been there, he understood the temptations. My God, it's in his work all the way through. Um, and, and it seems to me that they, they, their affirmation of the humane, uh, of civilization itself, but of the humane particularly, rests on their realization, this is true of Mann and Freud and Nietzsche, which is, which is to be humane involves a repression of what it is to be human. That's the basis of their work. Now, what you do with that troubling insight, well, they did various things. Um, and many, many of the things they wrote, one now disagrees with. So it was, we were talking about it on the train down here, actually. There was a, a, a little hoo-ha uh, recently that the producers of Love Island, reality TV series, have said, well, the format doesn't allow us to have gay people on. It would you know screw up the whole yeah you know, there's some i actually have never seen it but yeah, yeah. um but you know there, there were this kind of group of very sort of um like you know, quite wealthy white gay men who had seized on this as a, an example of the terrible yes. oppression yes. Of, of the, the times, times in which we live and i just thought it's, it's not that deep, deep to be honest. No, no, but, but no. it's it's interesting because it made me think of this line from from james baldwin which is that like you know for you know, for white gay men in particular, there is a, a a kind of contradiction, you know, in their coming to politics, which is that on the one hand, you know, in almost every other respect, uh, you're aware of what you should be entitled to and it's taken yes, away yes, from you. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and so this is, you know, historically, and so, you know, you get, 
so for him, it was the sense that there was a sort of uh, a fury about a, a birthright denied, which can on the one hand, you know, open you to all sorts of imaginative sympathy with other with other people, or it can drive you to a sort of uh, entitled desire to have your birthright returned to you and nothing else change. Yeah, um, and and a paranoid uh, entitled desire yeah, 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 sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, no, I I I, I agree. And um, yeah, um, can, let me kind of give you another example mm. of the of something just going back a step. Um, because it just came into my mind when you were speaking. Um, someone like um. I don't know, D.H. Lawrence or W.B. Yeats. I mean, both writers who, well, with, in the case of Lawrence, I mean, he is now, he's never survived the attack on him. A, a brilliant book came in, it's Sexual Politics. But people don't read him, um, and I think that is a great mistake because he's a, an extraordinary thinker, partly because he is culpable, not because he's innocent. Mm-hmm. Um, and but but for example, there's a line from him, and I which shows him as a stunning, a stunning writer. I think I quoted in the book where, and this comes back to the point you the desire and the the difficult, the contradictions, even the, the the demonic aspect of desire. When a woman says, "What do I care if he kills people? His flame is young and clean." Now that could be a highly homoerotic articulation as well, and we've been there. We know it—the fatality of beauty, you know—and and it it it's an aspect of desire, and it it it's a form of dangerous knowledge that is there in these books in, of the, of the past. Now, now, what you do with that, you don't necessarily succumb to it. You may want to control it. You may want to repress it. You may want to disavow it. But unless you've engaged with it, you're nowhere. And for example, Yates again, someone else who had very right wing views. Who's uh, you know who's who's yeah he's not doesn't have a good press. But the thing is, what I found fascinating about Yates was what I call the aesthetics of energy. This you know his fascination, just like Lawrence in a way, fascination with potency and beauty, and the way that it can kind of dissolve morality in an exhilarating way and a terrifying way. And he understood that. And when I watch the news, I'll see, you know, the programs on fascism and Nazism, I am so sick to my stomach and think, how could they have done? How could they have done? And then I read Yeats and I glimpse how I, at that time, via aesthetics, could have been seduced by a fascist sensibility. You know, the, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, you know, it's later in the swan, um, that, yes. that fascination with potency and, and, and and also the the sense of you know desire um a shudder in the loins in a shudder in the loins engenders there the burning tower the broken Ooh, roof and tower yeah. and like Agamemnon dead, dead. Yeah, yeah. so it's like you know <laughs> one doesn't want to kind of overemphasize the historical trauma of a, of one orgasm and anyway it's mythological but but to be able to do that you know to sort of locate in the shudder of sexual ecstasy. You know, in two or three lines to do this panoramic view of history, and then Agamemnon, sorry, Agamemnon dead, stunning, stunning. And as I say, when I read that, I, I, I won't say that you know I'm going to sign off as a fascist anytime soon, but I can understand how people like me back then, via aesthetics, could have been attracted right, right. to that those those fantasies of potency. One of the things I found 
daring, actually, I think, in, in the book, is, is that it's honest about sex and particular kind of forms of sex which mm. are specific to gay life, mm-hmm. from cruising to sort of bathhouses to, yeah, to also just kind of the, the, the casualness. There's a, a wonderful scene where you, uh, someone's gone to the, the, the clinic and got a card to hand to yeah. uh, to someone saying, you know, you've been a sexual partner. And then all of you sitting around the table gradually <laughs> reveal this that sort of web. It was Brighton. Brighton. <laughs> it sounds it would like Brighton. Be Brighton. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But 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 mm. these are all kind of experiences which you know mm. feel very familiar mm. actually. Mm. But it's also, you know, um, it, it's also, I think, relatively rare in, in gay writing, actually, to have that much honesty uh, about sex. You, certainly you quote from various novels, which and, and one in particular, which were castigated for being you know, too mm. you know, uh, unhelpful, unhelpful. <laughs> in their representation of gay life. So I just wonder if there's... Uh, you know, obviously that kind of honesty is important to you in the kind of work that you're writing here. Um, was it difficult to be that honest? No, I don't know. I don't know why not, because um, people have said the same. Well, people have asked me a, a similar kind of question about the stuff on depression. I don't know why. I, t- I think maybe I do thinking aloud. Maybe it's something to do with the fact that, as I said before, I'm really not that interesting per se. It's these things that intersect, which cross through me, you know, which connect me with something larger. So, so in a way, in a way, I, yeah, I just, no, I obviously don't disappear from the scene, but <laughs> it's something to do with that, that, that if it's true, if it's historically there, um, why not articulate it as, as, as truthfully and as sensitively as you can, but also to be also to be true to the moment in the sense that, you know, it may be something kind of pretty crass, but probably there was sensitivity and tenderness there, too. You know, so you have to be true to that, too. But but no, it wasn't difficult. Well, I mean, it, it interests me because, you know, the the temptation, I think, in in recollecting or thinking about stuff like this is to kind of retroactively kind of place either a, a sort of deeper or kind of more respectable meaning yeah. on it, right? And, and you know, it's, yeah. it's sometimes the way books like this are written are, are, are always with an eye towards the kind of redemptive yeah. um, or the kind of exculpatory, which I don't think this, yeah. this book does. Once or twice in the book, actually, you, you, you take the time to say that actually... You know, there is a certain stupidity that comes from yeah. a, 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 an attitude that sees this as the only possible um, expression of kind of intensity. So you have good things to say about mm. chastity mm. as much mm. as you do about mm. sexual expression. And renunciation. Do- yes, yeah, yeah, I wonder if yeah. you could develop that a bit. Um, well, it did occur to me actually when writing the second edition that that there is a kind of, uh, I don't know the word is chastity, but or, or celibacy, which comes the other side of promiscuity, and so people sort of see, oh, Saint Augustine, he was a he was a hypocritical old bastard, you know, because he said, make me make me chase, but not yeah, yet something yeah, like that. Yeah. No, it, it 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 there's something deeper going on there too. But but certainly, uh, I, I found I found that um, I I could have embraced the idea of chastity renunciation, or more accurately, I could understand it historically much better for having lived this highly promiscuous uh, uh, life. And it wasn't that I wanted to 
to renounce the you know the promiscuity but um i i wanted to just realize again how the perception the experience the memories could be extended to embrace something else which is normally excluded from them and you know what you're talking i was remembering the um you know the new the, the recent it's a sin which uh, which got so much publicity and i and i kind of thought you know and i know we both like some of the characters in that <laughs> um but but it was so interesting that that in the sort of pre-age moment, desire is utopian, it's wonderful. They're young, pretty boys having the time of their life. There was absolutely nothing at that point about, you know, the distress, the trauma, the difficulty of desire, you know, the difficulty of the, the terror of rejection, you know, all that stuff, which is true, and it's there. And and, and it, was, it was just a shame that it, that it wasn't there. And, and people are now having at the same time say oh my god i didn't know age was so bad you know they've also got a romantic view of the pre-age mm, moment mm, mm. so it's it's skewed but it was still a great program let's talk about form a bit let's talk about the memoir form because in effect there's a there's a, a format for memoir um and i think particularly modern memoir which is you uncover an originary trauma see how it plays out through your life and then have some kind of redemptive moment from 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 like from more or less page one, <laughs> you, you're sort of subverting that. So I, I, don't, I don't want to narrate the episode that starts at the beginning of the book, but maybe you can because it complicates the question mm, mm. Uh, of sexuality and mm. um, you know and, and the way in which sexuality shapes us. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, it opens with um, the book opens with uh, a moment where I see my mother in a car with a family friend, and he's trying to seduce her. And this is kind of problematic for me. I was about 15 at the time because that family friend, who was probably about 40, 45, was having sex with me. Now, as you say, this could be the original, I mean, the mother. <laughs> uh, sexual abuse, child abuse, me with the mother, the betrayal and so on. It could have been, you know, I could see how some people might think, yeah, well, that's right for therapy. What happened, in fact, was that um, I watched them for a bit and I could see my mother resisting. Uh, not not sort of distressed, but she obviously was in control, but she was sort of saying, you know, no, no, just, just behave yourself, fuck off. And uh, so I retraced my steps and I thought, okay, I'm going to do the same. Fuck off, Tony. Um, I don't want any more sex with you. I'm going to follow the example of my mother. So it's a kind of matriarchal thing. It wasn't trauma at all. Now, you know, I'm, some people could say, oh, well, I'm repressing that. You know, there, there was trauma. No, I don't think there was. And I, and I still remain, I have gratitude. Tony was a, was a bastard. I mean, you know, if I met him today having sex with a 15-year-old, well, you know, I, I, yeah, he, he might regret it. But... I regret nothing about my experience with him because he 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 began to educate me. He, you know, it, it's this old story of the boy and the man. It, you know, a story which which goes back so many centuries to the Greek culture, and it's now been repressed and excluded from from our own culture. But there is, you know, there is something interesting going on between the 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 man who educates the boy, and there, it is an erotic relationship. 
Okay. So. I mean, the other side of it, you know, in the book is that as he's leaving, he gives you this <laughs> this record of the right of spring, right, and right. there's a, a really sort of lovely um, <laughs> account of listening to it and realizing yeah. that it's not the kind of music that your parents would no, listen to no, at no, all. No, and, no, and, no, no. But so yeah, it was liberating. Yeah, but but that's mm. what I I like is that so early on that the the sexuality and art are so yeah intertwined. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, that experience of the right of spring was so important because for, for several reasons. Again, it goes back to the question of identity we touched on. That it, it, it was as if hearing it, suddenly I heard the I heard the dissonance as vital, not grating. And that moment, it changed my identity. It wasn't that I extended my sort of perception where I was talking earlier. It changed me. I, I became subtly different. Just like when I had my first homosexual experience, I wasn't coming out as who I always was. It changed me, it altered me. It was, it, it was exhilarating because I wasn't the same person. Now, so that's one aspect of it. But the other thing that was important, and I think this has run through my work, I, looking back now, thinking about this book, is that the, the connection between sex and art meant that, that for me, ideas and art is always to some extent libidinal. The extreme opposite of what it was was antiquarianism. Now, I can't understand antiquarianism where those people have an absolute dry, dusty fascination with the past. I can learn from them, but I can't share it. For me, it's got to have an experiential significance, which means that I'm never, I'm never really a very good scholar. It's got to speak to me at some experiential, even libidinal level. Um, and... and Yes, sometimes it does, but it means that a lot of stuff which, you know, other people can love and enjoy goes right over my head. So it's a limitation as well. It seems to me like one of the things that's going on, just thinking, you know, about the form of, of the book, is that although, the you know, it's a subversion of the kind of modern misery memoir, there is a longer tradition of what gets called confessional writing, but yeah, it's not like contemporary yeah, confessional yeah, writing yeah. at all. Well, you've mentioned Augustine, but yeah. it's also kind of Pascal yeah, thinking yeah, about, yeah. you know, like thinking about thinking and thinking about sin and thinking about, you know. And so so there's no, obviously there's no you know, overarching kind of uh, metaphysical framework for you in that sense. And I think you know, one of the, the things that, that if there's if there's a kind of powerful metaphysical message in the book, it is precisely to do with that kind of contingency of the sense of self yeah, and the fact absolutely. that there's not a prior I that 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 you know, is more revealed by it, but but that that actually your selfhood is is something that that is is made up of these kind of linkages with these kind of you know external works and, and yes. things like that. Yes, yes, it, and it, I mean, in terms of, I'd come back to that point, but in terms of the slightly earlier point about the metaphysical. It seems to me, I think, at the end of the book, I, I talk about the, the fact that introspection is, is not interesting if it's divorced from the external gaze. And for me, the external gaze was about literally the universe. The stars appear throughout the book. And I'm always aware of the stars. And I, I can't remember the exact formulation, but it's something like I say that we, we know enough about the universe to know that the immensely more there is yet to know will undermine what we do know. So that outward gaze towards a reality, an, an absolutely stunningly sublime mystery, um, absolutely dwarfs us. That's a very common trope. Uh, and again, it's what you do with that. I mean, you know, you, do you remain silent or do you try and articulate something, something, uh, something true, 
which also incorporates the humility of that outward perception. So, so if, if it's metaphysical, yeah, maybe that's what it is. But, but, but just on the, the, a similar point to do with Christianity, um, obviously, I sorry, I shouldn't say obviously, but I certainly don't believe in God. I'm not a practicing Christian in any way. And this harks back to our earlier discussion. Of there, the whole new atheism thing is about wanting to dump Christianity is just a huge historical mistake. Um, and I just think that's so crude. So although, you know, I don't share the religious view, um, and, and this was something you brought up in, in an email, I don't share the religious view, it does seem to me that there are some profoundly important concepts which come out of Christianity to, to do with forgiveness, humility, um, perhaps most important of all, atonement and redemption. And, and these are these are truly categories which which really have a vitality still in our culture, and and although people embrace them, it would be really nice for them to have a deeper understanding of them through through their history. Um, but sorry, that was just di digression. Do you want to get back to the? No, question no. The I form? think we should just, we should stay on, okay. on on this question because I think it's an, an interesting yeah. one. Um, and, and I think you asked about whether I was aware of the the confession yeah. form and I, and I don't think I was um I don't think I was at all but I am interested in those writers that you mention but also other people like Genet mm. because again it seems to me that although they are in in many ways um astonishingly themselves um there is all there is still this this absolute sense that there is something so much more important than me for which I am the focus or which I am glimpsing and and that I think is that's is it important. isn't it that's 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 mm. the dividing line between the things I, I can read and enjoy in this form and the things I really hate yeah, 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 <laughs> which yeah, uh, which yeah. Are that, that there is nothing beyond my interiority and God isn't it so interesting that I I absolutely I, I, a I. absolutely and you're not that's right you're right and, and and the other thing you mentioned closure I mean what an obscene concept closure is you know where did that come from you know what 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 mode of thinking mm -hmm. gave our culture this idea of closure and yet so many people you know, people who I respect and are deserving of love and empathy want to want to somehow um, achieve closure. It's hard not to sound kind of grandiose or talking about it, but it, it, you know, it feels to me almost as if like it's a desire for disconnection from yeah, yeah. And whereas you know, the, the, so you talk about the ideas that you pick up from from the Christian tradition. Actually, that you know, if anything, you know, I, I find myself reading kind of theological thinkers. A lot, and some are kind of arid and awful and boring and and kind of inhuman, actually, in a lot of ways. And then, like the really great, you know, the concept of original sin, very, yeah. very bad yeah, yeah, in yeah, many, yeah, many yeah, ways. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. yet, is speaking to something that's that's very similar, I think, to to what you talk about in the book. You, know, you use the 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 Platonic, I think, uh, metaphor of there being an originary that's human right. being, yeah. um, mm -hmm. who, which was a sphere, and then. You know, sundered, and so we 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 enter the world in this kind of sunderedness, um, and, and it seems to me that all these, you know, that metaphor, the metaphor of the fool, all of this is trying to get at, you know, why it is yeah. that so many of us yeah. enter into the world with this profound feeling of disorientation and lack, and yes, uh, absolutely, uh, and and I, I mean, I think for me, the fool is is one of the great myths. I mean, it's it, it, it's 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 what's the word? Um, it's inexhaustible in its uh, resonance. Uh, and it's important in this sense that 
we have a we have a narrative which you know the the great binary is good evil um true false um you know that the, the, these are separate things now the thing about the, the christian narrative of the fall is that it was about how virtue became contaminated by evil so that these things are precisely inseparable now translated into a contemporary moment it seems to me that freud was profoundly wrong well i think he was right when he said civilization sorry repression is the price we pay for civilization but he seemed to think that all that was best about us was on the civilized side and the dark stuff, the bad stuff, which is necessarily repressed at great cost, is somehow separate and elsewhere. It's in the, in the unconscious. Of course, it's always threatening us, but it, but it is conceptually, metaphysically distinct. Whereas it seems to me that the, the Christian narrative is a much more profound and insightful one because it shows how, as it were, the most virulent form of e.g. violence occurs not when the um let's let's use the banal terms for the sake of argument when evil overcomes good it's when evil erupts from within good as as a in, as, as an indistinguishable aspect of itself and this is why our history is a history of civilization the, the real violence, the, the real atrocities emerge from within civilization. It's not the primitive coming back. And again, going back to Aschenbach, Death in Venice, brilliant though that book is, um, it does kind of subscribe to that narrative that the, the repressed is the reemergence of the primitive. In, and that's the cause of the destruction. In fact, it, it is much more that civilization itself is what is responsible for the pain, the grief, um, the suffering. Um, and I think to, to, to understand that is, well, it's, it's, it's important, yeah. I was thinking of the, the, there's an expression, there's a line in, in Milton, and it's not, it's not actually in the poems, it's in the Areopagitica, the, yeah, the, yeah. the big speech, printed speech, but in, in favour of unlicensed printing, free press. Yeah. He talks about, um, you know, I, I can't remember the exact phrase, it's good and evil growing up in the rind of the same fruit. That's it, exactly. And, and that's why, you know, if I was starting over, I would, I would study German culture because well, it's, it's, I won't say it's the greatest culture, but it was, my God, it was an extraordinary culture. And as people like Thomas Mann and other German writers have said, the atrocities of the 20th century weren't some kind of aberration, you know, again, the, the kind of um, return of the primitive repressed, that these things arose from what was best about German culture. So the worst was inseparable from the best. I mean, good old Shakespeare, he put it so simply and succinctly, lilies that fester smell worse than weeds. Okay, it's slightly trite but it makes the point and stops me wittering on. But, but that's, why, that's, why I would, that's why I would study German culture, because it seems to me the great tragedy of Western civilization is that, you know, the best, isn't, the best and the worst is... Mm, 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 mm. Mm. And I think one of the, the things that is that a, sort of a, a consistent and very rich vein in your writing is, is a kind of refusal of 
you know, there are these caricatures of, of, of these progressive caricatures of conservatism, right? Which is, you know, they want to stamp out all that's good in the world and, and whatever. And you, you, you write a bit about, um, there's a line in, in this one about the, the sort of paranoid, uh, you know, liberated moderns versus paranoid Victorians. Yeah, and you yeah, yeah. speak up for at least the seriousness of kind of paranoid Victorians about yeah. actually how genuinely life-altering desire can be yeah, and yeah, yeah. include you know up to and including representations of yeah. desire as well yeah, absolutely so I, I wonder if you could talk a bit about the, the value of conservative thought in, in, in that sense or these kind of you know yeah. conservative thinkers well it, it's it, it, it's something we've touched on a bit with as i say people like wb yates and um dh lawrence and, and i would just say that you know one of the reasons why i think lawrence is a great writer is because he is undefended he follows he follows his libidinal trains of thought to the extreme and at the very least that gives us the opportunity of not following him um you know and learning at his expense and it seems to me that that is a great virtue of a writer and it it, it, it it's symptomatic and deeply sad that that that, that kind of um that that kind of interest relevance a writer can have is something which is now disavowed in the you know rejection of his politics um i i, I suppose i would i would say that that i think i would probably say that i i i can get as much from a right-wing thinker and ignore it so i'm not being very clear it seems to me that conservative thinkers are capable of profound insights which don't necessarily entail the politics which result from those insights for them. I mean, a classic case would be Schopenhauer and the quietism of Schopenhauer. Um, yeah, and likewise, people on the left are, are capable of extraordinarily kind of utopian and um, often harmful views as well. So, yeah, I think... I think conservative writers may have a certain kind of insight which is which wasn't necessarily disavowed back then by their critics but which is now i keep coming back to this disavowal that there is a refusal to confront something as a way of facilitating the prosecution of your own politics and that's that doesn't work for me in the end um it's always difficult to talk about this stuff and to talk about it in something you know is going to be public because, you know, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. you can feel the hordes bearing down yeah, on you yeah, saying, yeah, like, well, yeah. actually, you know, well, I, I, you know I, I'm afraid I do find this stuff but both interesting, you know, I can be interested in many things, but also useful. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. I spent a lot of time recently reading anti-democratic thinkers mm -hmm. and, yes, and they, yeah. give you, they give you insight into, into, you know, the function and limitations of democracy in a mm. way that, you know, you're not going to get from anywhere else. That's I don't right. have to agree with them. That's right. Um, and, 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 and it seems to me the, the you know, the kind of... Um, the affirmation of democracy has become a kind of knee-jerk thing. You know, it is the great virtue. You know, my God, democracy, defend it to the very last. Well, you know, the, the problems which democracy is throwing up, I mean, you know, are very, very severe. Yeah, and yeah, okay. I, I suppose there's an analogue of this argument in literary studies at the moment, which is to do with the sort of, with that category of texts that are difficult, Right, that mm. confront you with uh, sort of violence, which confront you with uh, 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 questions 
you know, that, that are often uncomfortable to read. So, for instance, you might think you know, that a, a classic early modern example of, of this would be something like Nash's Unfortunate Traveller, yeah. where there you have a, a this kind of picaresque character who is yeah. effectively yeah. getting himself off while watching a rape. Yeah. Now, yeah. that's actually, it's a tremendously unpleasant thing to read. And actually... There's, there's a kind of knot later in the text where the, he's kind of realising his own kind of yeah. status of voyeur. Very, very interesting chapter in, in that yeah. novel. Um, but, but, but it and texts like it are, are, you know, increasingly difficult to teach. I have some sympathy for people who say, you know, it's good to know going in that it's going to be difficult. Mm-hmm. And again, this is one of those territories in which it's really easy to sound like a dreadful old reaction. You know, kids these days, they don't do the reading, they don't, you know, whatever. But I wonder if there's something to be said, you know, about... Because one of the things we're, we're kind of talking around here is the question of canons and canonicity, yeah, yeah. right? And the, the idea that there are these kind of... This set, it might be an open set, it might be a closed set, it might be a changing set. This set of works that by engaging with, it's going to change something about who you are and it's going to bring you face to face with something really significant i think i think the can has always got to be attacked uh, by a new generation but on, but but only with from those who understand it from the inside um the thing about the canon is yes at some extent it's it's always going to be be an expression and a consolidation of the interests of those people who promote it and and when we're talking about the academy so many of those people were from my view deeply inadequate as intellectuals as critics as human beings so at that level i I want to critique the canon but the idea that there are these texts which even when they're abhorrent that they are texts from which, which one may learn absolutely and i'd even go further that and to say that actually in some ways it doesn't always matter what the canon is, because if you approach it with a certain kind of intellectual sensitivity and a willingness to be challenged, a willingness to extend your range of perception, um, then there are many texts which can do this for you, which, which can, as it were, reflect back to you the narrowness of your own position, even as you're affirming it. And it, that seems to me, as again, has always been a traditional aspect of education. And it, it's very sad if people think that actually the politics comes before the challenge. What about the politics facing the challenge and then being re-articulated subsequently, it, the stronger for being able to take into account, you know, that which contests it? When I was reading your section on kind of the you know, honest work... Yeah, because you say, you know, you, in a sense, like leaving academia allowed you to rediscover how to think. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I felt, you know, the, 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 the antonym obviously is kind of dishonest work. And there is, there's almost a kind of always a sort of constitutive risk of dishonesty in writing of any kind. Yeah. Um, but I think in particular, the kind of academic writing encourages you to, to make kind of all sorts of, nonsensical kind of reductive uh, forms of reading so i wonder i wonder if there's just something to be said uh, 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 about honest work versus perhaps the tendency to so it's something that doesn't play a huge role in this book but you've written about elsewhere mm, which is a, mm, a mm. wishful theory yeah just going back one step about um 
the academic politics. I, I think I quoted it in the book. I can't remember who said it, but there's wonderful line that the reason why academics are so bitchy to each other is because the stakes are so low. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a wonderful observation. But my God, you know, it it can be so vicious. I mean, it finished me off at York in many ways. Um, you know, because I'd been I'd been hired to basically because I was a half decent writer and a half decent teacher, and um, you know all they wanted to do was just mire me into dishonest work, you know, of one kind or another. Um, and I think, I mean, honest work. Well, what is it? I can't really define it, but I think everyone knows it when they see it, and certainly when they do it. And the dishonest work. Well, yeah, I mean the 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 whole education thing is. Is, is just rife now with dishonesty. It's terrible. It's so fraudulent. Um, I, again, it's something I say in the book, but I remember, um, and this, by the way, in relation to dishonest teaching, it seems to me that teaching is a very, very precious and vital thing, um, and, and it's something which the universes have made virtually impossible to do. Um, and I, I cite the example of a seminar that I vividly remember when um, 10 students came to the seminar and they, none of them had read the books. And uh, I, either, I either spent two, two hours telling them what they were about or I did what I did. And I said something like, um, look, I don't care if you spent the whole night fucking, clubbing, doing lines of coke. Um, but interesting people do that and read books. Right now, you're not interesting. Fuck off and read some books. Now, that would get you sacked now, almost certainly. Back then, I didn't make a habit of doing that. But there were times when that kind of coercive aggression is absolutely vital in the teaching relationship. And, OK, a couple didn't come back. The others did. And they did indeed read some books. <laughs> you know, And, and we, we ended up having a good good connection but that that's symptomatic of something that that the whole thing is now controlled um so so um so totally and again for me this is this is it seems to me that what's happened and it's symptomatic of something happening in our culture at large but it's happening in education most acutely you have a practice which is vital like teaching now because it's vital and important it's open to abuse of course it is. So you have the forms of abuse, whatever they are, bullying, um, you know, sexual exploitation of students, and you legislate against them. And in the process of doing that, you also manage to stifle what is vital, right? In other words, teaching properly is inherently risky, okay? It's, it's open to abuse and exploitation. But we live in a culture where you are so are so concerned about the abuse that you end up stifling and destroying what is vital about the practice now this comes back to the you know the, the idea of the fall if you like to jump <laughs> to jump aggressively that you know somehow the vital is never free of what potentially shadows and destroys it or compromises it but that's how it is and and we live in a culture where that is happening more and more generally and and it produces, to come back to the point, dishonest work, 
deeply dishonest. I mean, or, or I would say defensive teaching. We all know about defensive law, don't we? We know about defensive medicine and the way that those things can really corrupt the whole practice. Well, we now have it in the universities, defensive teaching. Uh, and, and, and it's a whole culture which I'm afraid privileges the second and third rate. I mean, I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't say that the universities, even in the past, were great on sort of bringing first-rate people in. You know, academics have always reproduced themselves. That's one of the big problems. It, it, it's a culture where people are given the freedom to reproduce themselves in the people of their point or the people they supervise. And that's, that's regrettable. But, um, but it's never been as bad as it is now. I wonder what your thoughts about this, because obviously, you know, you have this background in, in running the sexual dissidents yeah. MA, but like it's also the other thing on my mind is just how that field almost seems to become this this way of kind of almost like determining the outcome that you want before you go into exactly. kind of the, the work, right? Yes, like yes. I, I need to discover the progressive, ex, you know, the progressive you know message yeah. from from this kind of aspect of sexuality that i'm studying um and therefore i'm going to kind of construct it and it, you know the other you know the, there's also always a kind of you know the, 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 a novelty almost like that we're the first people to have discovered yeah. i don't know you know lesbianism or something it's a kind of questionable uh 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 move yeah i think queer theory did develop uh some of exactly the same problems that i've just been talking about with um with neurosorcism. In fact, I always tried to avoid the term queer and I didn't really want to be known as a queer theorist, but you can't resist these things. You know, history just takes it over. So you run with it. Great, There were great things about queer. It challenged the moralism of um, a lot of gay and lesbian politics. I mean, there was a fabulous moment once that during when I'd set up, Alan and I'd set up the sex disc uh, MA, when I wanted to teach lesbian S&M, there was this very influential book by, by the Samoa uh, collection. And um, some very, uh, uh, what it, um, some feminists decided that this was should not be taught. Um, it was deeply offensive. And uh, I insisted that I would, teach it so there was a kind of standoff but we did a compromise <laughs> this is fabulous the compromise was that the book the samurai okay, would not be on display in the university bookshop but it would be obtainable from under the counter <laughs> <laughs> so you went in and you asked can i have the samurai collection please it's under the counter <laughs> and then and then they're like, Oh, oh, right. Yes, here it is. So, <laughs> so that was that was how we we negotiated that. But but it, to be tr to be honest, you know, towards the end of my time at Sussex, it was getting quite tricky um, with things like that and a lot of kind of pious, self righteous thinking um, among among some of the students. Um, and um, you know, I, I did feel it was time to to kind of hand it on. But um, but in terms of its origin. It actually came out, I started teaching gay stuff in in the 80s, very early on. And I did it in the context of early modern stuff uh, as well. And and at the time, I, I very much wanted to teach alongside the history of other subordinate groups, because that seemed to be really instructive. Cross-dressing, for example, in the early modern period, the whole demonizing of witchcraft, um, the world up turned upside down all that stuff was really really interesting so so it grew out of that and interestingly the program as we it was called the center for the study of sexual 
distance and cultural change, right? Because we wanted to have a very strong kind of... At the same time, we wanted to be rigorous with our history, but we wanted to be politically... Uh, how to have a political vision as well. And it wasn't long after that I left that actually they dropped the um, cultural change bit. So it's now just the study of the centre of sexual disease. I don't know. I've asked why it was... I don't think there's anything kind of, um, you know, bad about it, but it, 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 it's a shame that they dropped that. Um, and I actually went up to... There was a, uh, a day's uh, conference celebrating, I think, 25 years, a couple of years ago. And I was listening to these... Some of these papers, and oh my God, it was anti-radical, but at the same time, I'm banging all the new oppressive norms of the academy, you know. So I'm having my cake and eating it, and it was it was disappointing. I think I, I wrote to you before this conversation to say one of the things that, you know, I was reading the book, and I, was like, I and I realised that, you know, whether it's just the, the stuff that I read these days or, or not, but I realised that I was reading gay writing, right? That I was reading, I, 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 I recognised and understood and shared in like lots of the stuff that's, that's in the book, um, you know, including, you know, there are observations and you have a, a time in Sydney where you're you know, observing those, there's a very particular kind of gay man who lives for, for, they're often very young and they hit a crisis point when they cease to be young, um, uh, but who lives for the sort of nightlife. Um, but there's a whole range of sort of mentalities and experiences and, uh, uh, you know, even kind of conflicts that I think, you know, uh, uh, are not represented there, you know, so often in, in, in gay literature. So I, I want to spend some time on the gay stuff with, 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 with the awareness that, that it's a complicated question yeah, for you in some yeah. ways. Um, but, but maybe we can sort of start there about just for the representation of gay life yeah, in literature, yeah. right? Well, you know, I thinking in the back of my mind when we were talking earlier about you mentioned about cruising and you know why did we cruise? And I realised actually for me it was about adventure, and um, you also mentioned the picaresque in relation to 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 Nash, and and it seemed to me that that there was something picaresque about the whole kind of gay culture thing, cruising and and, and that, and I liked that very very much, but. The sex was great. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not... <laughs> but, but it was the adventure, you know. It was the adventure as much as the pleasure. Uh, and that meant that, you know, the adventure would sort of take you places where you wouldn't necessarily go to find pleasure. So it, that that was interesting. And, and the other thing is that, you know, for all the kind of... I had to be realistic about the gay culture, particularly the club scene. But there were. I also make sure in the book that... I, I try to be true to that aspect of gay culture, which is very important, which is that the, the, the way that its history did enable you to, to, to connect with people who you wouldn't otherwise obviously connect with, either through reasons of class or race or whatever. And I, and I really do sort of cherish that. They, you know, that, that, that was great to find yourself in an unexpected bed with an unexpected person from whom you learn something i think the the case that just comes to mind is the argentinian boy that i met shortly after the falklands war so 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 all of that was part of the adventure and something i remember remember very um very very acutely so i mean one of the things that that i realized after reading is that it didn't feel like an absence while reading but i realized that there wasn't sort of much engagement with it um 
other than you know so for instance you you act as a character witness to a, for a gay student of yours who'd yeah, been yeah. caught cottaging and you mentioned that it was around the time of kind of gay liberation movements and you were kind of buoyed up as part of that but but actually the kind of formal part of of the, the of gay politics doesn't doesn't seem to play a no, role at all did no. it or is it oh it did i mean at the time i mean certainly you know like with the sex disc program at sussex and that it was it was all very important and and um you know working in Brighton um, I was part of the, the group that tried to set up the the gay center in Brighton which sadly didn't didn't happen um, yeah it, it it was all going on in, and and that too was very very interesting and important and you know during the early days of AIDS it, some of the it was really you know I did fear I did fear the worst at, at times um, but but in terms of gay politics it, it it, it doesn't necessarily feature in the book because I did have an ambivalent relationship to it and for reasons that I mentioned when I found myself in bed with an underage, well, I say underage, he was, this was when the age of consent was, was 21, 21 yeah, and he yeah. was 19 or 19. And, and, and I had this kind of, this double thing that, you know, on the one hand, the, the political side of me says, this is outrageous that this is illegal. I will fight it to the death. I will go down fighting it. And the other side of me says, actually, you know, there's really something delicious about this being so beautiful and illegal, you know. So so I could never quite count, I could never claim that I was, you know, the the that responsible political agent that so many of my friends were. Um, but then having said that, I think that the price of their political commitment was and, and this is completely understandable there were certain things that they couldn't acknowledge about gay desire mm, mm, mm. um you know the compulsion which again is something i talk about um and and i don't i don't sort of reproach them for that at all uh it's just the con- again the material conditions yeah there's a there are kind of passages in the book i mean the, the chapter dedicated to alan i thought um was both incredibly funny and also um uh, very moving actually and and again, it's it's this kind of uh, you know encounter with with respectability. Yeah, it, it, it seems to me that it would be hard for you to engage with any politics that were premised entirely on identity. Yeah, true. And I wonder whether there's just a kind of sense. So you, so you were mentioning earlier, there's a you know, the, the 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 big you know benefit of the kind of emergence of the sort of queer stuff was its kind of rejection of moralism and i think yeah. that's you know i think that's true i think it's also yeah. like yeah. very helpful um so it seems to me that the queer things get subducted into this you know into you know reified into a sort of identity right so when and how does it happen do you think i mean you know th- this kind of return to a kind of static identitarianism do you know one one thing I should have said earlier, which is that around things like identity politics, woke politics, and the other things which I've been criticising, um, there is a spectrum. I mean, I know some people who advance the woke politics, identity politics, and they do it very intelligently, and, and I learn from them. And obviously there are others who do it so crudely, using you're just stupid. So I, I should have prefaced this discussion with, you know, that, that, that in all these areas there is that spectrum. But coming back to your point, um, do you know... I think it's something to do with consumerism. Um, obviously, we know that, uh, I mean, both in the club scene, but also the pink economy, you know, the, 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 the gay thing was, was very easily commodified. But, but it does seem to me that the idea that identity and desire somehow dovetail neatly has more to do with consumerism than it does with any 
you know, truth to people's experience. And I think that's probably true with a lot of of the um, narrowing of focus around this, that it's it's more comfortable. And consumerism is, is, is nothing if it's not about comfort, you know, feeling comfortable with the world. I, I remember that, uh, not in this book, but um, some, <laughs> I was on the, I was on the, um, yeah, it was the West Coast of the States, and I met, I met this hippie, and we started talking about religion. And he said, you know, man, he said, you've got to choose the religion that you're most comfortable with. <laughs> When you think of the history of religion, that is the last fucking thing you do. You know, you go to the cross, man. Right. right. You go to the fucking cross. You don't sort of put comfort. And I think that that, that um, is something to do with that. What is agreeable? What is comfortable? And the fact that, that, that somehow the culture of commodity culture makes it possible to op- occupy occupy that space easily and unproblematically right and i you know and i think this is the great sort of triumph of, sort of progressive neoliberalism in one sense is like like you know you can have any identity you want and you'll, you'll all be able to get married on top of the shard mm, and mm, be, mm, you know great mm, and mm. sustain property relations or whatever you know and i i think that's you know that's that's right, and in, in one sense, you know, one of the reasons that I sort of press this book on, I'm going to press this book on some friends, is that the sense you know, to confront the, the 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 fact that desire can upset and alter your identity is to confront something about identity that, that is that is absolutely and exciting, exciting, yeah, and and yeah, and yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and you know, and in continual negotiation yeah, yeah, and yeah, in yeah, kind yeah. of continual construction and reconstruction, yeah, self-fashioning yeah, 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 is yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. a word you might use. But the, but the fact that, that, that the challenge of identity might be only disturbing is part of the problem. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. I, I, I'm insecure. I've been, I, you know, I feel insecure because something, something in me has changed. I, I think we should also talk then just a little bit about depression and about despair. And, you know, in some ways we've sort of been circling around it in, our, in, in the way that we we've touched on kind of theological vocabulary, mm, which mm. is often better for this. I, I was thinking about how to phrase this question, your struggle with yeah. all, all these horrible banalities um, that, that characterise a lot of the kind of popular discourse on this stuff. It's a line in the start of one of the Geoffrey Hill poems after he starts on lithium. Um, oh, all right. Which he was on for a bit and then came off and whatever. He says, how is, it, how is it tuned? How untuned this harp of nerves? And you think, yeah, no, that's 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 it. That's the experience of, of medication, the experience of, of, of this particularly difficult zone of mental health. I mean, we, we've talked, you know, maybe we've talked a bit, a bit, maybe too much even about the theological and the, the that, that kind of space of vocabulary. So maybe it would be worth talking about that encounter with depression and in particular the vocabulary for mm. it that, that mm. for you comes mm. from the early modern periods. Yes, absolutely. Um, again, my, my worry, my concern, and I don't know if this was justified, but my concern is that actually a bit like AIDS, shockingly so perhaps, that people don't want to read about depression. Oh, they may sympathise with it, but they don't want to read about it. And I, And I've read a lot of really kind of stuff about depression, which is not not successful i'll put it that way so that was a worry i wanted to do it in some way that connected with people um i don't know if i, I don't know if that worked but um it's it, it seemed to me that 
Yes, the early modern... I, I had to understand it. This was the point. I had to understand. Well, I never did understand the causes. But what I did do was to understand, through the early modern period, that strange paradoxical kind of internalising of death into the desire, that, 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 you know, the idea that the libido itself can be death-driven in some weirdly perverse ways. And, of course, whenever I used to talk about this, people would sort of wince and, and you know, it's all very pathological, you know. But I say, yeah, it is pathological, but it happens to be intrinsic to a period of the greatest literature ever written, so think about it. At least think about it. Um, so, so that that was that was important. But I think again, the even more important than that was the last chapter of the book, which absolutely was written as I was coming out of depression. And I think I hope that it had a sensitivity, which I certainly couldn't have achieved during um, when I was healthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it has it an almost pathological sensitivity, although I tried to sub sublimate the pain into something else. I didn't want to just bleat on about the pain. I wanted to, I wanted to create a sensibility from the depression. But this is precisely what's unacceptable to many modern mental health advocates. You know, something like, so I, in fact, I think you reference her, Kay Redfield Jameson. Yes, yes. When she says, uh, you know, she talks about, what's the book called? Touched by Fire or something yes, like that. Yes, yes. The, the, like the, and it's precisely the thing that you can't really say now is that there is something... I wouldn't say I'm grateful for it, but there's no. something valuable in the experience of, yeah, as you say, yeah. coming out the other yeah. side. Coming out the other side. I don't think a heightened sensitivity. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the, this is, you know, this is again one of those areas where, like, the the desire to keep things kind of neat, yeah. um, or, or to to yeah. to to, to decomplexify them—that's a horrible word—but <laughs> to simplify them—that's to 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 deny that there can be some sort of conflict. Yeah. There and that actually your feelings about it can be conflicted. Yes. Um, yes I mean, you know, yeah. I'm in the middle of it. There's the, just nothing I desire more than to escape. But, yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the, that, as you say, the kind of gradual opening of the world again is... Is, is amazing. Yeah. Um, the... the um, oh, um, George Herbert lines, I can't remember them now. Grief melts away like snow in May, as if there were no such cold thing. I mean, yeah, that that... That extraordinary, almost unbearable intensity, uh, which you get coming to coming coming to life again, is is yeah, that's precious. Um, but the other thing about the depression is that I I think I say I'm sorry I say that actually the only kind of advice I have, having sort of been <laughs> through the mill of psychoanalysis, psychiatry, drugs, and God knows what else, that um, the only advice I'd give anyone is. Um, Try and be around people who make you laugh. And I really do believe that. And you know what? As I was thinking about that today, that's an awful corny platitude. Laughter is the best tonic. You know, how corny can you get? But it's interesting, isn't it? That some of those old platitudes, if you if you scrape the layer of familiarity off them, they actually are really quite insightful. And, you know, for someone who is obviously so so important to you, I think it, it is revealed in the chapter, uh, you know, about your life with Alan, mm -hmm. 
like the, it, it is, it, it, you know, I, I was laughing out loud at various, various of the, including a, a kind of, maybe you could tell us the, the story of the dinner party where you're seated between, you know, on the one hand, a kind of, you know, uh, uh, a very dry academic. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one of the interesting things about uh, back then is that I can't remember how it started, but I, I got to know... Um, through being gay, I got to know people I'd never, ever in a million years have talked to, including Etonian school teachers. Um, and through them, I got to know some dons at Cambridge. Closeted, they're all closeted dons. And I used to go up to this country house in Cambridge to stay with this don. And um, and he would have these dinner parties. And, and, and on the one hand, he would invite all these closeted gays from the university um, who would go on boring go on endlessly about you know some minor figure that they're that they're, that they're researching but he would also invite people like me and alan and sometimes some rough trade that you know they encountered on the way and i was once at one of these dinner parties and um on on, a, on my left side appropriately was a was a biker a very interesting guy um uh, this is a story of yeah, yeah. <laughs> This biker was telling me uh, on the left-hand side that he'd recently contracted a, a STD from someone he'd picked up at a service station. And on my right-hand side, there was this academic trying to interest me in a very minor Jacobean dramatist. So so on, on, on the left side, was I was getting things like, I don't know why I fucked him. He was you know, horrible and so on. And then on, on the right-hand side, the guy was saying something like, well, of course, Chapman at his best is the equal of Shakespeare at his less than best, but I really don't have much time for Middleton. <laughs> and, and some of these, these two conversations kind of rather kind of epitomised my life at that time. <laughs> um, and, and, and the interesting thing is that the, the biker who was a very interesting guy. I only discovered recently, or relatively recently, that he ended up um, marrying a rich widow who knew absolutely nothing about his picaresque life before. <laughs> and the old boy on the right, he died in college, and um, no one realised that he had died because no one realised that he was even alive when he was alive. <laughs> so it was, um, it was, it was a, it, it, an interesting experience of... Uh, of Cambridge, the university. Uh, it seems to me it must have been a, a, a deliberate choice to 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 put at the centre of that chapter so much that's so funny. Do you know? I, I when I was when I first started writing uh, academic books, I wanted to change the world, or rather, I wanted to change that infinitesimally small and irrelevant bit of the world, which is the academy. Um, and then I came to realise actually the the highest aspiration that any writer can have is to make the reader laugh and cry. Now, I don't think I'd make people cry because, you know, that that's a real tough thing. But if I can make them laugh, yeah, I, that's... I wouldn't want anything... That, for me, is a really worthwhile thing. Uh, and, it, and, and it is it goes back to the depression thing, you know, and the fact that actually laughter and humour really was something that lifted me, lifted me out, you know, to some extent. Uh, I, so I, I do, I think it's... Vitally important. You you were mentioning to me in an email that you've been reading um, Dante. The concept of the human comedy comes from Dante, and and it's comedy in that sense. It's not just humour. It's quite a deep sense of the word, the human comedy. Yeah, in all its kind of yeah. I used to think of the tragedy as you know the most exalted form, and then actually it was when I got into Jacobean tragedy and uh, realised you know in some of the things like the Revengers tragedy that actually the humour 
the camp dark black camp sort of humor was really was really quite savage but also in some way more insightful you know yeah it's very easy if you were to to take on or to learn i think especially in in kind of academic kind of representations of lgbt studies or queer theory or whatever they seem to split into these two these two camps one is is really not any of this at all which which is the idea that desire is simply controllable and rationalizable and and, mm, and, mm. and almost kind of planable you can schedule your arousal for between you know one and one thirty on tuesday and mm. then whatever uh, or on the other hand you know that, that there is a, a sort of you know there is a a, a kind of unapproachable queer desire that is you know utterly repressed throughout the entirety of society and the the project of liberation is simply to emancipate mm, mm, you know this mm, force that somehow mm. abides within you um and and that there is never any you know and that any kind of conflict or difficulty or contradiction uh is simply a result of of inadequate expression or or, or repression it seems yeah, to me that, yeah. that both of these camps sort of fail <laughs> completely yes, yes, you know yes. compared with your account does that make sense yes it does make complete sense and i also think I, I would add something to that that it seems to me that whenever we experience distress in relation to our desire or indeed our identity there's this reflex movement to blame the culture the dominant culture it's it, it's homophobia or it's misogyny or whatever well it may be it may be but it seems to me that there's We've moved into this domain whereby now um, it would be just interesting for people to acknowledge that there are, as you say, contradictions inherent in desire. I mean, you know, you don't have to dwell on them. They don't have to dominate your life, but they are there and they are important. And they are also the they are also the route to a deeper understanding of what's going on. See, that that's important for me. You can talk about pain, you can talk about suffering, you can talk about unhappiness, and I'm as sympathetic as anyone, but it's got to go somewhere. It's got to, it's got to go somewhere where it reveals something interesting, hopefully something you know, which, which, which will help you, but, but not necessarily. You know, follow the truth wherever it might lead. I mean, this is an old injunction, which I think we've completely lost. Um, and I think it's a rather noble one, even a romantic one, sometimes quite heroic in the case of someone like Nietzsche, for example. I mean, I won't say he paid with his sanity for his pursuit of the truth, but he came bloody well near to doing so. And so, 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 so that's that's very, very important for me that that we try to get to some some place where. If I say it's the truth of being, that sounds a little bit pretentious, uh, a little bit kind of um, over the top. So just call it, call it an acute perception. And there's something for me redemptive about, about that. Um, again, it goes back to that idea of the enlarged perception, the enlarged perception, the deeper understanding. It's, maybe it's a kind of residual echo of religion i don't know but it's there no i i agree and i think there's something that connects it to sort of sublimity yeah. as well and like yeah. those, those classical accounts of the sublime which yeah. are actually that it's a, a sort of terrifying exactly. experience exactly um the other thing i was thinking of when when i was reading and thinking thinking about this stuff is is the the back eye um where you have a confrontation between Pentheus, who is this sort of, you know, extremely rationalistic 
king and Dionysus, but Pentheus is you know, just unknown to himself and because and, and, and he can't know it, it's just utterly attracted to, to this, this force. And there's just a, a line in the exchange between those two um, where he doesn't know, he thinks Dionysus is the priest of, of some kind of foreign cult that's arrived to upset and seduce the women. And, and, and the god turns to him and says, you, you don't know who you are, what you're doing or what your life is. I think yeah, that's that's a, the, one of the best plays written two and a half thousand that's, years ago. That's really. us. That's yeah. us. In, 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 and 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 the really shocking thing is that they then tear him to bits. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's one thing to have Dionysus kind of tamed as the antithesis of uh, Apollo. You know, the the the, the you know whatever the mm-hmm. the antithesis of rationality. But my God, I mean, that's that really is demonic. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah, seriously yeah. demonic, and it's very very disturbing for us because, as you say, we think we have tamed this stuff maybe we have you know maybe this is kind of superstitious crap from the past but you know it's worth thinking about and the reason why that play has endured well mm-hmm. you know it speaks to something maybe it speaks more to the repressions of rationality than it does to the liberation of desire because we can we could never i mean we could never get back to that notion of the dionysiac although interesting in someone like thomas mann you know, the return of the repressed for Thomas Mann is Dionysus. Mm, mm, mm. I mean, it's deeply, deeply destructive. You're thinking in Dr. Faust. Oh, sorry, Dr. Yeah, Dr. Yeah, Faust. Yeah. yeah, 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 Aschenbach, yeah. yeah. It is yeah. deeply, deeply destructive. Now, as I say, I don't, I don't want to sort of affirm this as a, you know, a profound metaphysic from the past, which we should re-embrace. No way, but it seems to me we can learn from it. And this, for me, is one of the great problems that... We have lost the ability to learn from that with which we disagree or, or which challenges us. And, and there, there, there was a view, and I still think it's a very valid review, that you do need to be challenged. Um, you may end up repudiating the challenge as, you know, superstitious crap. But to, 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 to disavow the challenge, um, to disavow it, um, you know... Uh, before you even engage, I think that's a, that's a real, real problem. And it's, it's something to do with the high level of defendedness of our culture. And this is really, really very um, unhelpful. Maybe you should expand on the idea of defendedness, because this is something you've thought theoretically through for, yeah. for some time. Well, it, 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 my slightly facetious example at the beginning, you know, the younger me who embraces the identity, wears the badge, it signs up to the current rhetoric, you know, of uh, everyone's oppressing me um, and so on. All of that, the politics, is rooted in disavowal. Um, that's not to say that there isn't validity in the politics. That's not to say that there isn't homophobia and so on and so forth. But these things are always interesting at that point where, as it were, the truth is being uttered but in relation to a repression or a disavowal. Um, and, 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 and that's endemic in our culture now. I don't know how you get through it because it's not simply a question of returning to rationality or empiricism, although, my God, both those things are important. Um, but we need to work harder, think deeper. And that's it. My thanks to Jonathan Dolimore for such an extraordinary and expansive conversation. And yet it only touches on a fraction of what's in the book, Desire, a memoir is out now from Roman and Littlefield. I really, really, really recommend it. It should be your summer book. 
My thanks to superstar Navarro Media producer Chow Ravens for wrangling a near omnidirectional conversation into a show format. That's it from us for this week. Stay up to date with us at navaramedia.com and stay locked here on Resonance 104.4 FM. This has been Navarro FM. I have been James Butler. I will be back at the same time in the same place next week. Bye-bye.